I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be in chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. I'd like to ask you to stand. We're going to read a little bit, pray, and then we'll get into it. Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And, it be- and again, he began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land, facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground. And yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer today, that ours would be ears that hear. We ask, Father, for your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and minds, fill our very beings, that we may receive the truth of your word. I pray, Father, your Holy Spirit would speak through me to make clear your intention to your people, that they may be built up, equipped for works of service. That is your agenda for each of us. So we ask, Lord, this morning that you would do all that you want to do in our hearts in this service. We pray, Lord, as we examine this, that you would point out our own responses to you, but also that we would be mindful of those around us that perhaps this word would explain to us. So we ask for all of that to be done now by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everybody agreeing, saying, Amen. You may be seated. What we have just read and listened to is commonly referred to as the parable of the sower. Though I hope to convince you that a better name would be the parable of the soils. It's the first of its kind in the Gospel of Mark and arguably the best known of the parables. A parable, as you likely know, is simply an earthly story that is employed by the Lord to convey a divine principle. You may wonder why the Lord chose to use these stories instead of just simply directly teaching. First, they are accessible to everyone. The educational level of the masses that gathered around the Galilee was quite low. A parable made use of common imagery and could be understood by all. For the spiritually hungry, the flow of kingdom knowledge was uninterrupted. This leads to our second purpose for the Lord's use of parables. These stories were useless to the religious elite. By the time this parable is used, the Pharisees, scribes, and Herodians have all formed a conspiratorial coalition to destroy the Lord. Mark chapter 3, verse 6, and he's not offering them any ammunition. The benign nature of these parables would cripple their efforts and leave them with nothing of substance to report to their superiors. I mean, can you imagine them coming back to the office to talk to the big wigs, to ask them? They were asking, hey, did he talk about himself being God? Well, uh, he told the story of a farmer. It really wouldn't help their cause. That's both the effect and the point of this parable. 
Jesus at this time is dispensing life-changing information. He is ministering the very word of God. Those that believed were being strengthened and led deeper into the things of God, into the heart of God. Those that have chosen unbelief are left to suffer the consequences of their choice. In fact, the parable, the use of the parable, the type, the type of genre of speech is actually in itself a judgment according to Isaiah. For all that Jesus has said directly and proven through his actions, faith has not been born to the masses nor to the religious establishment in mass. It led some at that time to question, Lord, are there only a few that will be saved? And it leads us to wonder something similar. Why is it that some seem to flourish spiritually and others seem to flounder? What makes the difference in a person's life with regard to the word? What sets a person up to have a healthy spiritual life rather than a prolonged spiritual death? Unlike many of the parables, Jesus gives us the keys to the symbols right here within the text. Please note with me verse 14, and we'll take a little example here. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones... By the wayside where the word is sown. The sower then is the preacher, the deliverer of the seed, which is the word. The original and ultimate sower is our Lord himself, Jesus Christ. And when we speak what he speaks, we join with him in the enterprise of seed sowing. I want you to notice how little is said about the sower or the seed. They're not described in any way. One of the greatest problems today in the evangelical church at large is to critique both the sower and the seed. They want to critique the seed and seek to modify it in some way. For example, if the sower only wore designer clothes and spoke in sweet, dulcet tones... If we could only hybridize the seed, let it, let, let's make it less spicy and let's make it less bitter in certain areas and for certain tastes. If we could do that, then it would grow magnificently. What an indictment upon the modern church who has spent a large portion of their energy modifying both the sower and the seed, thus corrupting both. The seed that blends psychology with the gospel or that advances so-called social initiatives with the gospel arrives with no gospel at all. Many will have to answer to the landowner on the day of judgment for their use of perverted and defective seeds. I don't need to tell you this. You guys are well taught the word of God, unadulterated and unfiltered, is the only effective kingdom authorized seed. It works silently, quietly. And given the right conditions, eternally. Understand that. That neither the seed nor the sower is the problem in our initial question. Why is it that some seem to flourish and others seem to flower, flounder? The seed, the method is sound. The seed is healthy and heavenly. Since that is the case, why does it not seem to work in each person equally? Have you seen this? You have that piece of information. You, you've gathered it from the internet. Elisa Childers, amazing, amazing young lady. Every woman should be going to that. She is a great, great apologist. Brand new kind of to the field in the last several years. Amazing content. Say you pick up one of her YouTube videos and you, look, you think about a friend. This is what my friend's been waiting for. If I can just get this video in front of her face, she's going to come to Jesus right away. And then you bring that video and all she does is does this. So when are we going to coffee? 
doesn't even hit her. And you wonder, what is wrong with her? What is going on? The problem, friend, is that this parable is not about the seed. It's about the soils. Many of you are going to go home today and you're going to critique how the speaker did. You're going to go, you know, he's not as buff as our usual guy. I mean, our usual guy has guns. That guy had water pistols. Oh, I know, I can understand my pastor, but Dulcet? Who uses a word like that? The critique isn't about the speaker. It's about the hearer. So guess what I'm going to go home and do about you? <laughs> the emphasis is on the soil. The parable is a critique of the hearer, the type of soil that the seed, the word, falls upon. As verse 15 indicates, the, one, the ones sown by the wayside represent a type of individual heart response to the word. While the sower and the seed are of only a singular variety, the soils, the hearts of men are described by four types that Jesus will reveal to us. The first we will call the hardened heart. Take a look with me at the description, the statement, then the explanation. Verse 3, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. That's the statement. Here's the explanation. Verse 14. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Jesus begins with the wayside person. A well-trodden, compacted, and hardened path that generally surrounded any person's field. Not as permanent as concrete, but the sun-baked surface was about as close as one could get to concrete in the ancient world. That's where the seed has bounced to. These people hear the word, Spoken as one hears the noise of the world in general. But its meaning and significance as, is as meaningless as all the other sounds that they hear. The seed cannot penetrate the surface. These have become hardened against and resistant toward God's word. How does one become hardened? It begins with a failure to believe in the Lord Jesus. The longer that one refuses to believe, the more callous and unfeeling that person becomes to spiritual stimuli. Think about the story of Pharaoh. You can go back and read it on your own time. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. Before long, God confirmed his condition and hardened his heart. On the other side of the spectrum, there are those that are hardened by abuse and mistrust of authority. They have been burned by so-called and hypocritical Christians in their past. Naturally, they perpetually distrust anyone that might speak the truth of God to them. There was a time in my life I lived in Ladera Ranch, California, one of the safest cities in America. In fact, so safe, it was never mentioned on the list of cities that were safe. We were around, surrounded by the top four of those cities. At the time when I lived there, I was the most dangerous person in Ladera Ranch. That's how safe it was. I remember going to have my car serviced. This is the car that I would eventually turn in. It was a Corolla. And I would turn it in and get promised $500 for it. When they saw it, they gave me two. A hundred, not two, although it was probably only worth two. 
I was taking it to this mechanic, a Persian fellow there, and he had been working on several different uh, pastors of the area who drove significantly higher brand vehicles than mine. And they came showing up in their suits and they had an entourage and whatever else. And he was talking about, as he saw me reading my Bible, offering me tea, he saw me reading my Bible and he goes, you're not a Christian, are you? Well, actually, I'm a pastor. He goes, oh, Christians, they're all the like. They all wear these suits and, you know, they drive these Mercedes Benz and whatever else. And they come in here, they're all rich. I'm all, sir, excuse me, my Corolla's worth $200 in the end of it. You just saw me walk in. I'm wearing flip-flops, shorts, and a t-shirt. How do you explain me? But that is so much how the world has become hardened against Christians. The public face, those that call themselves Christians, have done such a poor job representing who we are that many are very hardened by that picture they see. So because these are hardened, the seed of God's word has nowhere to germinate. It remains on the surface, exposed, as it were, to the elements. And what does that describe to you? The hardened heart individual is happy to sit and listen while it suits them to do so. They will engage intellectually or listen as one listens to any form of entertainment. They politely endure a few jokes, niceties, inspirational volleys or political views and will be grateful to walk away with a few inspirational quips even to go share with those that they'd like to impress when the sower moves beyond what pleases them the ground firms up around their hearts and faith in Christ personal repentance from sin and death to self all sit powerless on the surface any knowledge of what would save or sanctify them is lost to them. Satan's minions fly in and remove any remnant of knowledge from their hearts lest they attempt to access it later and receive the benefit. Now, how does Satan do this? Does he simply distract from the truth with other bits of tantalizing knowledge? Perhaps he simply whispers a lie or two about the possibilities of something being too good to be true. I even recently watched a young man when I progressed the conversation into the gospel of Jesus Christ. I watched him fall asleep right in front of me. Now that's not a new thing. I do that every Sunday. I do that every Sunday about 10:15, Some I have a gift. Soon you'll be experiencing it. But this young man had been so energetic talking to me about getting me to buy into this landscape business that he was doing, getting me to employ him. But then, as I turned the conversation to Jesus, he just literally fell asleep right next to me. Maybe that's how Satan does it. Most of the time, I'm convinced Satan just tells your friends, that's good for them but I don't need it. Satan has many means. Jesus expressly blames his agency, but the point is that Satan works actively against the ministry of the word with as much vigor, if not more, than you do in giving it. Whether it's the initial call to salvation or the current call to repentance and acceptance of the word, the hardened hearer keeps the word at bay and Satan keeps that person enslaved. So think about that as you're witnessing, as you're talking to somebody. Is this person a hardened believer? Is that where they're at? Jesus moves on from the hardened heart to this shallow heart. Take a look. We'll get the description. Verse 5. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched and because it had no root, it withered away. Verse 16. These likewise are the, are the ones sown on stony ground who when they hear the word immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time. 
afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises, for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, before we look at the stony ground hearer, consider the implication of both kinds of ground that, that, this, that this reveals to us. The fact is that the seed fell on these kinds of soil. All people are glorified dirt. If you went outside and you took the chemical composition of dirt and you put us against it, you would find very similar, in fact, identical. And the word does tell us, to dust we shall return. The fact that it falls here in these places speaks to the indiscriminate nature of sowing. It was, if the farmer had modern machinery, he would have been much more discerning. You don't put seed on concrete. That just becomes bird seed. Everyone would know this. You don't put seed in shallow places. But because he's broadcasting, that's where that word comes from, by the way. Broadcasting comes from grabbing seed out of a bag, tossing it in every direction. It falls everywhere. That seed goes everywhere. That's the picture of our work. You and I are to cast the Lord's word in every direction without concern to where it falls. And what a contrast the stony grounders are to the waysiders. This to me reminds me of that old West Side story. Like these are two gangs, you know, like you want to see some snaps happening soon. There's going to be a war going on here between the waysiders and the and the stony grounders, and where the waysiders are indifferent, the stony heart hearers are ecstatic. The waysiders, they hear it resignedly, if they must. The stony ground individual hears the word enthusiastically. A waysider won't receive the word at all. The stony ground hearer is immediately, emotionally invested, overjoyed to welcome the seed into its new home. These are the ones who believe without question. They've caught on to something that they've been missing their whole lives. They are the veritable gospel goosebump brigade. They can't wait to leave church so that they can publicize what they've found, thinking that everyone probably will feel the same way as they do when they go home. They obviously haven't heard the gospel. I'm going to let them in on it. Now, is excitement about God's word a bad thing? Not at all. The word of God is wonderful, rich, and so, so exciting to those that love the Lord. That's not a bad thing. The problem, though, about being only excited about God's word is that that excitement alone cannot carry. If there's a failure to be more than excited, then you've got a problem. Excitement plus education forms a foundation for a root system. Questioning what I've become excited to believe, searching out trusted resources, and examining my convictions in the light of Scripture allow the roots to grow strong and deep. And in Israel, when you cast seed on this kind of shallow ground, because the bedrock was so close to the surface, the heat of the sun would bounce off the conductive rock and scorch the seed. Because these didn't have a root in themselves. In other words, these believed what another said. What's the problem with that? Shouldn't we trust those that teach us? We can trust Pastor Rawl. We can trust the pastors that he asks to be here 99.9% .9 of the time. That rare exception gets in, I don't know how. But they can be believed. What's the problem, though, with, if that's all that they have? If a person only believes because someone has told them what to believe, what will happen when someone tells them something contrary to what they've believed? 
That's the issue. That is what it means not to have a root in one's self. If all you have is a response like this when someone asks you, oh, it's because my pastor said, oh, it's because I read it somewhere. That's not going to hold up. That's not having a root in yourself. And naturally, these kind of hearers can only endure for so long. Please do take note. Jesus marks it. These people do endure for a time. Now, the Greeks used two different words for time. One speaks of chronology. Chronos, right? All of you are marking time right now. You're look, I keep seeing people do that. No, I'm not seeing. I'm just joking with you. That's my congregation. Anyway, but uh, they do that quite rudely. And, you know, some of them are like, you know, cut it off. <laughs> They're very rude. Most of them are my family. Anyway, um, you know, it's famous. My wife, actually, on Thursday nights when we do our home fellowship, she, she speaks for the Holy Spirit and says, it's time to cut it off. <laughs> she tells me every Thursday. Uh, but in any event. So we have chronology. Chronos. The other word for time is kairos. That's the phrase here. Literally, it means they endure while facing opportunity. This person will remain excited so long as he is faced toward opportunity. As long as the word suits them, they're quite happy to bask in applause for their decision to follow Jesus. When the winds are favorable, they're happy to fill their sails with Christ. That is, until the wind turns and the opportunity isn't one for applause, but for strength, conviction, and commitment. Now, these types of people love to talk about all the good stuff that comes with being a Christian. Peace, forgiveness, grace. But when the word shines its light upon repentance, upon forsaking sin and committing to holiness, the wind is taken right out of their sails. Now Jesus doesn't mark how long that favorable wind lasts. However long, whether it's decades, years, we don't know. However long, when the wind shifts, so do they. But what's the catalyst? Why is it? Why is it that all of a sudden, somebody who's believed something so long, why is it that all of a sudden they switch? Eventually, notice what he says. The word itself comes into conflict with the world that this person lives in. When that happens, tribulation. The word is unbearable pressure becomes the order of a day. In fact, did you know this? This is a great way to get something out of a criminal. They would take a weight, a very strong, long, big, huge weight, and they would lay it across someone's chest. And they would give the person a chance to confess. And when they didn't confess, they would lower the weight a little bit more. And they would give them another chance. And they would lower the weight a little bit more. And if that guy did not confess pretty quick, he was crushed. That's the word, thalipsis. That's the idea of the pressure bearing down upon this person. And it comes from all sides. Family members, friends, fellow employees, neighbors. Today, social media. People you don't even know, really. You know what I'm talking about. You, you, someone friends you, and you, you saw them somewhere at one point. They look kind of familiar. They're in your family of friends. You kind of know who, you know, they, they seem a little familiar. And they pop up out of nowhere when it comes time to speak about the Lord, and they get angry about something that you said. I've had that happen this last summer. I had a long thread conversation. Who's had that happen? Which one of you was that person? I just No, I'm kidding. <laughs> But the pressure comes from all sides. 
And when that pressure is generated by peers and the changing cultural mores, when they bear down upon this individual, if they happen to persist beyond the pressure, persecution rises to meet them. Now, as I understand it, this word means causing someone to flee. They are, or are at least, with regard to their opinions, they are no longer welcome at the fellowship table that they've been eating at. All of a sudden, the once popular convert is run out of their network and are branded as backward social pariahs. And what happens to them then? Now they've lost their friends. Now their friends are out to get them. It's not just pressure any longer. Now they're actually being run out of their network. What happens then? The Bible tells us, Jesus says, then they become stumbled. The word is literally scandalized. It's to put an impediment in front of someone. That's the first definition. But I want you to listen to the second definition from the Blue Letter Bible lexicon. Listen to this. To be scandalized is to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. So when God sows his word in your life and you're convinced that it's true, it's the Holy Spirit who has shown you that this is true. But then when the world around you changes its opinion about sexuality, marriage, and the like, all of a sudden, wait a minute, I thought what he said was true. And your mind begins to distrust the truth and to begin to believe the lie because all the people around you, many of whom are barely older than you, most of whom are far younger than you and are just tech savvy. All of a sudden, you're starting to distrust what you knew was true. And now you think, maybe I was lied to. That's what it means to be scandalized. Today, when pondering the problem of deconstruction or deconversion. Anybody here heard those terms? Elisa Childers just recently, as a matter of fact, did a podcast with regard to deconstruction. I would encourage all of you to take a listen to that. Sean McDowell also did one in the summer, I think around August. Excellent, excellent work about deconstruction and deconversion. It is a hot topic among evangelicals today. And if you have not heard of it, it's essentially this, that someone has believed in Christ, but as time has gone on, they have found that they've re-examined their beliefs and have come to believe differently. Now, when it comes to refining your faith and taking out things that probably shouldn't have been there, traditions, secondary kind of secondary in importance doctrines. They're not essential doctrines, some of them. What would I speak of with regard to that? Well, we can take a look at eschatology and we could say that it's not necessary for a person to be saved to believe in a pre-trib rapture. Uh, you're just wrong at that point, but it's not necessary for you not to believe. In fact, I've told my post-trib friends, I said, well, listen, when the rapture happens, you don't get to go. We're going to be raptured. I'm just going to be waving bye to you. Enjoy those seven years. Um, I'm kidding. Gosh, okay, whatever. My, my congregation didn't get it either. <laughs> they just wish I would stop. Anyway, um, so those might be something that you would call a non-essential. When you decide to switch up on non-essential doctrines, that's just called maturity. That's just called growth. But when you take essential doctrines like the person of Christ, the nature of salvation, when you take those essential doctrines and you begin to decide whether or not those come along with your faith, you're not just deconstructing faith. You're showing that you're actually not in the faith at all. This particular description that Jesus has just given us I believe, shows us why we have this problem today. Why we have so many spiritual malcontents. 
In my observations of this phenomenon, I've noticed a similar pattern with each adherent, and you know many of the names. I won't give those people a platform, but let me just give one in particular that you know of. There's a young, there's a young man that you know who wrote a very popular book back in the 80s. It was called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Maybe you read that book, let off the purity culture that was so pervasive in the church mid-80s into the mid-90s. Recently, this young man also kissed Jesus goodbye, and shortly thereafter, kissed his wife goodbye as well. And it looks as though he's maybe embracing a very different lifestyle. Once a pastor of a mega church, deconstructed, and there's many others like it. Here's the pattern that I've noticed. When Christianity was popular, financially viable, and the popular consensus among their peers, their excitement carried them along very happily. As that advantage was lost, so was their zeal. Now they don't want to be seen, and these are quotes, they do not want to be seen as bigoted, narrow-minded, or even worse, on the wrong side of history. Two famous bloggers, Christian bloggers, used to work for Campus Crusade for Christ. Huge, huge following online. Deconstructed last summer. And they said in 20 years, the church, or at some time, maybe in 100 years, the church is going to be seen as being the wrongs, on the wrong side of history with regard to the LGBTQ community for the wrongs they've done. You know, incidentally, being on the wrong side of God is far worse than being on the wrong side of our friend's view of history. And to be on the wrong side of God, you, that's the wrong side eternally. But it's a sad condition of judgment upon the shallow Christian understanding that is playing out right before our eyes. So Jesus moves on from the shallow heart to the crowded heart. Take a look at verse 7. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Verse 18. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. The final faulty response of the heart is represented by soil that is infested with thorns. Notice, it's not the seed that grows, but the thorns that grow up and choke the seed. Now, is it not thorns that come stock with every fallen human heart? Is it not the judgment of God that the earth would produce thorns because of man's rebellion? Are these not what formed the Lord's crown? Same word. The crowded heart people have heard the word. They've even taken it into a degree. But not to the degree of making it the priority in their life. It's the addition of Jesus without the subtraction of anything else. Jesus is just another supplement for a spiritual deficiency. is a topical salve for an internal bleeding wound. The majority of this person's life crowds out the growth of the gospel's seed. These people do not think to rid themselves of the thorns as most of them do not see these things as thorns. They would focus on Christ except that they're concerned with the cares of this world. This word cares refers to being separated in different directions, not being unified in purpose, not having a strong focus and vision on what's important. 
separated in different directions. That's what this age specializes in. It keeps you and I spinning round and round with trite novelties until you're so distractedly dizzy that you never even have time to think about how to prepare for eternity. Boy, what a story this last week. How many of you saw this? Some young woman, barely, she has one, she has a husband and a, and a child working on a movie set, shot with a prop gun. Last thing they saw was Alec Baldwin. Can you imagine? You're just going to work one day and your life is over. And there are so many people like that that don't, and these are the, these are the hearts that we're talking about. They don't even know the danger that their life is in. At least you and I have processed it. We understand if we're Christians, death is just the door that opens to eternity. And if it happens suddenly, the better almost. Especially today as we can keep people alive for months and years on machinery. But almost the better to go quickly in the sight of the Lord and to be with him. But the world doesn't even think about it. They don't even process it. They don't even want to talk about it. So they keep looking this way and that way and over here and over there. And they never give time to their soul. Our news feeds bombard us with a steady deluge of worthless, faddish pieces that spin us out of control. The distractions of this age are born in the backs of riches, which are in themselves a thorn. Though in this case, it's not the money, it's the delusion that's created by riches. Notice the word deceitfulness. It speaks to the worldview behind the accumulation of wealth. It promises fulfillment and satisfaction, but never materializes. It cheats you out of your own life after you've spent all of it looking for a life. It's remarkably sad that most people only see this at the end of their days. After they have lived their life. It's tragic and for some an eternally perilous condition. But then if you escape these thorns, if somehow... You're not into the cares of the world. You're not into uh, the deceitfulness of riches. You're just going to have a constant craving for something else. There's not contentment. You're not happy with where you're at. There's just something in you that's just causing you to want something that someone else has. The grass is greener over there. Friends, let me tell you, if their grass is greener than your grass, that's artificial grass. That's the issue with that. That's not real grass. That's the problem. But there's a constant craving. Where does that come from? I'm not happy. I'm just, a, there's this kind of unrest in a person's life. They can't stop. They, they can't sit and think and be content. They can't want what they have so that what, what that they want is what they already have. Something is better somewhere else. And if I could just get that, if I just had one more of this or just one more of that, I'd be there. These people, the word never takes on its full intended flavor. Do you remember earlier I mentioned the phrase hybridize to hybrid, to make a hybrid seed, to modify the seed? Do you guys remember I said that? For these people, the word of God becomes like a new set of guidelines for their already established set of desires. It's like God's word gets turned into a fortune cookie that helps them. In other words, God's word, John, uh, John the Revelator is, is just about as good as Zig Ziglar. That's kind of, that's, what, that's the way they think about the word. So when I mention hybrid or modified seed, recognizing that this is the heart of most postmodern people, which theology promises most of what they want? Who tells you that your faith is the key to gathering riches and sustaining health? Anybody heard of this? Have you heard of the prosperity doctrine? 
This is the ultimate Ponzi scheme in the history of mankind. You ever wondered when you get all these groups together, these Ponzi schemes, if you know what that is, the triangle, uh, the people at the bottom, they bring in all the money, and the one at the top is the one that has all the, all the blessing. <laughs> everything they're preaching about, everything they're talking about, guess where that's? They're getting the benefit. I read this last week that uh, one of the guys who's a, a real proponent of this, his name's Creflo Dollar, perfect name for a televangelist. He changed his name to Moneybags McGee. No, that's it's a sarcasm. <laughs> that's not what, that didn't. That was on the Babylon Bee. Uh, <laughs> I read it; it's true, but it's it's a sarcasm anyway. <laughs> you know, this last year at, during the pandemic, uh, 2020, our church was sequestered in a home in Mentone. We're like the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Uh, we're, we're Calvary Chapel of Colton in Mentone. <laughs> uh, we've been meeting in our home, and most of us are there, and mo- some of us are online. In fact, they should just be starting service here in a few minutes. During the pandemic, you know, uh, I figured this is a, as good a time as any. Let's go through the book of Job. Everyone's already depressed. Let me just push them right over. <laughs> I tell you, why not? No, I, okay, Calvary Chapel, born and bred. So, like, you just do the next book. And if you don't do the next book, you're a coward, and you do not belong in the pulpit. So I, I learned that from my pastor, Don McClure. You do the next thing. So that was our next thing. And I just thought, Lord, really? Man, you're going to kill these people. <laughs> but it was so rich and good. But listen, I took our church to the book of Job, and I found it fascinating. I never saw this before, that Satan sets his sights on interrupting Job's Wealth and health. Figuring that this was why all of humanity worshipped God. So I find it remarkably odd that the prosperity doctrine and Satan's observation seem to work in concert with each other. Because in their mind, at least they can have everything you want And have Jesus. That's the quintessential heart. But God's word will never play second fiddle to desires that keep you from expressing his son's image. That's his goal for you. So we move from the crowded heart to the fruitful heart. Verse 8. But other seed fell on good ground. Oh, thank you. And yielded a crop that sprang up Increased and produced some 30 fold, some 60, and some 100. Verse 20 But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Some 30 fold, some 60, and some 100. Now, friends, don't miss this. We're getting to the good stuff. You can kind of get that energy back in your body again. We're almost done. You almost have to, it's almost lunchtime. You're going to be okay. This guy's almost finished. Three, I want you to hear this. You're witnessing all, now please remember this. Some of you think, oh man, if only Paul was here. If only Paul was speaking, then I could get out the truths that would change people's lives. Oh, if Jesus were here and he were doing all the miracles, certainly everyone would believe in my family. Friends, look at this. Jesus said of his venture of sowing seed that for every four people you witness to, three are going to say no thanks. That's Jesus the Messiah. The best of the best. Some people are so discouraged. Oh man, I did the best witnessing ever. You know, they get all down on themselves. Jesus says, three out of four, they're not going to bear fruit. So can you give yourself a break? Can you stop thinking that you're not God's gift to evangelism just because three quarters of the people you talk to turn it away? Can you get over yourself a little bit? Just kind of relax. Understand, it's not you, it's them. It's really that way. 
Three quarters of the seed fall on unproductive ground. There's an old weatherman, Fritz Coleman. He said it would be this way. Well, Jesus said it would be this way. So relax. Only a quarter of the seed, the word of God, falls on good ground. And why is it good? Do you notice it? There's no, there's no description as to why the seed falls on good ground. What makes it good? Well, first, because it's not the other grounds. It's good because it's not the other grounds. It's good in comparison to the other soils. Unlike the wayside ground, for example. The good ground is soft. Willing to receive truth as it is expounded. If it is in accord with his interests. And please, let me say it this way. The Bereans took what was said by Paul the Apostle and they went to see if it was true. You should never trust anybody here without that caveat in your heart. I'm going to go find out what's true. He says that I'm going to trust the Lord in him, but I'm going to check it out for myself and I'm going to have a nice root. It grows because it's something I believe, something I have found. But the ground is soft. Unlike the stony ground, its rows are deep enough to protect the seed from the rising heat so that the heat gives the benefit but doesn't scorch it by being too shallow. Unlike the thorny ground, other material is removed in order to make the seed a priority. The good ground hearer accepts, doesn't just hear, everyone can hear. It accepts the seed. They take it upon themselves. They recognize the personal responsibility. They are vested in what is being said. There's a big difference between the way some people hear what I'm saying and the way others are hearing it, even now. Some of you are going, this, I need to learn to apply this. I need to ask the Lord to show me which heart is mine. What's going on with this friend? And you're already investing yourself. You're already putting yourself in that position. You recognize your personal responsibility as the word is going out. You're saying, yes, that's me. And consequently, these bear fruit. They are fertile in their deeds. That is ultimately the reason why they're good ground. Because they are fruitful. It's kind of heart is productive. It shows in who they are. It shows in what they do and how they do it. When you walk into work tomorrow morning, you guys have seen a workplace. I used to work at the packing house and at the end of our days, it was a cubicle farm environment. We had built a building and the office space was cubicle farm stuff. Maybe you have something like that in your, in your world. You walk in on Monday and someone hasn't had their coffee, well, you know what kind of weekend it's been for them. As a Christian, you shouldn't need your coffee. We have Jesus. We have the joy of the Holy Spirit. They should go, what are you drinking? I haven't had it yet, but wait till you see me then. <laughs> wait till you see me then. Some of you think I'm a heretic, that you think you would even leave the house without having coffee. I see you too. And I'm with you on that. But you get what I'm saying. There's a palatable difference between a Christian. In fact, how many times have you seen this? Where you walk into a store, perfect strangers, and you just look at their countenance, you go, that guy must be a Christian. And sure enough, soon, you find out, just by a little talking, that guy is a Christian. Because there's joy. There's something about you that's different. It shows to the world. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. 
Personally, these people repent of and forsake sin. They joyfully offer their worship to the king. Publicly, they speak of his name and nothing changes their minds or sways them from his purpose. Each one bears the fruit that God intends. Some produce 30, some 60, some 100. I've pondered this for a long time. Do you know that the people that were listening to this, when they heard this, this would have been absolutely shocking because an average yield of seed would have been 4%. 4%. A great year, 7.5. But 30, 60, 100? These are unnatural numbers. But that's the point. When God's word implants into a heart that's cultivated in this way, that good ground heart is, the results are not unnatural, but supernatural. God brings life to it. When God's word touches that kind of environment, it grows to great heights than anyone could have ever expected. And I've even noticed in the good ground hearts that I've seen in my life, that they only become more fruitful with age. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 92, verse 12 through 14, a section of scripture as I age that I find very comforting. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Watch, they shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. Some of you are going, I don't feel very fresh and flourishing. <laughs> well, it's good for you to hear this because God promises ever increasing fruit well beyond years of time and it gets sweeter as you age when you're good fruit, when you're good ground. Now, as we close, the application is almost too obvious to miss. Let's begin with the difficult portion, shall we? For every four, person, four people that you witness to, three will fall on ground that will fail to produce fruit. Now, that doesn't mean you should give up. A person might be hard-hearted when you meet them, but that doesn't mean that they'll always be that way. You're just the next cog in the machinery of God to reach their hearts. So just because they're hard-hearted persons now, don't think that that's the end of their story. In fact, knowing what you know about this passage and what you now consider about them, this gives you the greatest insight into prayer for their lives, right? Pray for softened hearts. Pray for a deeper longing and understanding of God. Pray for shifts in priority and the Lord to reveal the emptiness of worldly pursuit. When you recognize these hearts, match your prayer with what's going on in their lives. More than anything, remember that even if your seeds land on the unfruitful soils, all you need is to hit one. All you need to do is hit one to see a tremendous yield. So... So, so, so. Preach to every creature. Trust in the Lord's power and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, he saved you when you believed. Would you have ever believed it? Before you knew Jesus, could I have convinced you that someday you'd be sitting here tolerating me? reading your Bible all the time, coming to church whenever it was open, being part of a growing church that's going to knock down these walls sooner, I pray, than later. Would you ever have believed it? He can still do it in your friends. They're not worse than you. They're not harder to him than you were. Trust. Trust the seed. Jesus has no problem dealing with them, but... As we close, we have to turn inward. What kind of heart has the word fallen on today here in this place? Ask yourself, am I hardened to God's instruction? Have I become 
too sophisticated in my own belief that I can't even listen and be instructed in God's word? You want to ask yourself that. Am I, you want to ask yourself, am I excited but intimidated by the world? Is my life too crowded with lesser priorities that are limiting the effect of God's word? Are these things true? It would be wise for you to say, God, take a look at the soil. Tell me what needs to happen. Because I want to be good ground for you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for those that are here this morning and those that are watching online. We just give you praise and honor that you're doing your work through your word now. And Lord, I just want to lift up this family here. And I want to ask you to work in their hearts now. And first, as we pray, we want to pray for those that have not yet come to him. If you know somebody or if you are somebody right here that's never trusted Jesus Christ, the word of God has gone out to you and you have the opportunity to receive. If you've never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want to give you that opportunity. I would like to ask right now, if that's you in here and you're convinced that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that he can take your sins upon himself and give you his righteousness, if you would be willing to give your heart to Christ, is there anybody like this who's never done that here? Just raise up your hand. And I want to pray for you. If you would like to receive Christ. All right. For those that we have people in our lives that are different kinds of soil than our good ground people. And we want to pray for them. I just want you to lift up your hands. And I want to pray for those people right now. Thank you. Lord, I just lift up these that are being represented by these hands here. I pray, Father, that whatever soils they are encountering, Lord, you would do the work in those lives. Soften hearts, deepen rows, cause, Lord, people to see the priorities that they need to shift. Lord, do the work in these people, Lord. Let them be faithful sowers that they might see good fruit in their days. I pray, God, your hand be upon each one as they go to the purpose you've given them. In Jesus' name.